0: Good afternoon, my name is Jed Dorshaw, and I'll be the host of the Plugged In Podcast, brought to you by William Blair. The purpose of this podcast is to help educate the relationship that we have to energy. We'll bring you some of the most knowledgeable experts in the world across all different types of institutions that understand the key relationships that energy has with, well, everything. Now, most people tend to think of energy whether it be gasoline or heating oil or propane or even electricity that turn on your lights. While all these are forms of energy, it doesn't explain the relationship in terms of how energy flows through everything in our world. And then to go further, the relationship to what's produced and also consumed. We outline much of this in our red pill report published last year at William Blair. We'll be publishing an annual energy report to continue on this theme. Now, today, it is my pleasure to speak with Dr. David Murphy, also my technical advisor and uh, helped on the Red Pill Report. David's an ecology professor at St. Lawrence University in upstate New York, although he's taken a semester abroad in London. He has published numerous peer-reviewed abstracts, including his work on the harmonization of EROI, or energy return on energy invested, a key metric we have built our methodology around. In this podcast, we're going to discuss three key points. The first is how energy explains the real economy. The second, because of energy's role, how we can then apply the laws of thermodynamics, which have never known to be broken, to economics and the relationship between EROI, that's energy return on energy invested, and ROIC return on invested capital. Lastly, we'll talk about the importance of optimizing energy efficiency in the current energy transition. So welcome, and I look forward to bringing you a monthly podcast, which hopefully you'll find useful. Dave, welcome. Good
1: morning. Thanks for having me, Jed. I'm
0: excited to be here. I think you're the, given the amount of work that we're doing together in this particular area, I think you're the perfect person to have on our first one. I mean, you're over, I think, in the UK, doing a a semester abroad, teaching at St. Lawrence. Is there anything you want to talk about before we jump into energy here?
1: We've been working now, uh, you and I, on some reports about how to integrate what we broadly call biophysical economics and our net energy analysis into what I guess we in academia call the real world, right? Where the actual investment decisions are being made. So it's a very exciting time to think about the energy transition, to think about all the changes that are occurring in the macro economy, and to think about how the research that we've been doing can add value for people that are just trying to make decisions. So that's awesome. it. Really.
0: Well, just as a little plug, for those interested, you can check out more resources at the Biophysical Economics Institute, www.bpeinstitute.org, something that uh, Dave and I are both involved in on the advisory board. So Dave, let's just start at the beginning in terms of briefly, how do you think energy fits within the economy? Or perhaps maybe said differently, how does energy explain the economy?
1: Yeah, I think it's critically important, especially in today's world, that we think about energy as explaining the economy, not money. And once you're able to think of the the economy as an energy system, it gives you a different perspective. And if one's already familiar with the financial perspective of the, mon- the money side of the economy, learning about the energy side can be revelatory. It can help people think about decisions they make in in vastly different ways. So We can start just with the definition of the economy, right? Like, how do you define economics, right? It's the allocation of goods and services amongst competing ends. That's the definition you'll find in most textbooks. And realistically, if we think about goods and services, what are those? Well, uh, a good is anything in the economy, right? But fundamentally, what is required to make that good? Well, there are two universal inputs to anything, right? And that is matter and energy. You have to have those two things to make any good, whether it's a a chocolate bar, a tire, or anything else in the economy. Some matter and some energy has to be utilized. So when you think about these, what I call ultimate inputs to production, as opposed to like the proximate inputs, which the economics tends to focus on, which would be, the, the actual input materials that might go into building a tire or something like that. Sorry,
0: when you mean proximate, so this would be like the Cobb-Douglas production function of labor and capital being the the starting point, and what you're getting at is labor without energy would be a a corpse, and and capital without energy would be a sculpture. So if either are productive, we need the the matter to kind of drive those. Is that is that the right way to think about it?
1: That's exactly the right way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. Economics traditionally thinks of of output as equaling some function of labor and capital, but both labor and capital themselves require energy and material to operate. So if we think about that, right, then it's really no surprise when we look at the data and we see that energy explains... Basically, economic productivity almost perfectly over the last fifty years. The Cobb-Douglas production function has massive error in it when they try to do the actual analysis, and that error they they allocate to total factor productivity. They call it the residual. It Solow's residual. It's like the model isn't perfect. So technology, that you know, that's the that's the effect of technology in the economy. But Air's and War did a ton of work on this, and they actually measure exergy, which is useful energy, and they said that. And you can look at the, the the graphs they've put together. You can estimate output from the economy very, very accurately over time if you just use energy or exergy as the main input. And that's because energy undergirds every all production processes. We have to have energy to produce something. So it stands to reason, right, that when you do the math, that they're correlated. That's why bigger economies tend to consume more. Historically this consumption's been fossil related so that's why the biggest economies also tend to have the most greenhouse gas emissions right so that's kind of the macro perspective on how to think about like the relationship between productivity and and energy
0: you and i have done some work and you've done some work and published papers on this concept of that our friend Charlie Hall really developed around taking ecology in the concept of energy return on energy invested and applying it to oil. Now, you've gone a bit further in harmonizing some of the contemporary work of EROI and bringing that to point of use, so that we can get some type of standard measure to benchmark. You want to just touch on that in terms of what you've done there, because that seems like a pretty good starting point that if we're saying that energy is kind of the basis, how do we measure you know, we're going to be able to need to measure that, and what does that mean in terms of this EROI, whether POU or or just EROI vernacular means?
1: Energy return on investment is is a measure of the energetic profitability, right? So it's it's akin to kind of like a cost benefit analysis you would do in, in financial in the financial world, like um, a return where, on like, invested capital. Yeah, exactly. We do. So it's energy out from an energy producing process. So if you want to think about it, it would be oil produced from an oil well. And you would divide that by the amount of energy required to produce it. So it's very kind of like simple in arithmetic, right? It's just a a division and it gives you this ratio. So like if you produced 100 barrels and you invested one, you'd get a ratio of 100 to one, right? The devil's in the details in some of these analyses. There's boundary issues. We want to make sure we're, we're comparing apples to apples when we do these analyses, and that was really the motivation, I guess, to put together the harmonization report we did this past year, which examined the energy return on investment for a broad swath of technologies uh, and energy resources, you know, harmonize them, which means we brought in all the boundaries together and we tried to make them as comparable as possible, utilizing the lifecycle analysis database. This is a massive database from EcoInvent, uh, which is curated out of Switzerland. And and what we found was pretty interesting, right? We we focused both on uh, two different boundaries. One would be, you'd consider like the point of extraction. So for coal, that would be like the mine mouth or for oil, it would be like, you know, the oil well. And then really what we focused even more on was this point of use. So like society doesn't run on crude oil, right? It, it runs on refined petroleum products, gasoline, diesel, and these things. So it made more sense to us at least, to think about the energy return on investment when that fuel actually makes it to the economy. It's delivered in, in a useful form. So that's at the point of use. So that would include harmonizing values so that it included like the cost of running a refinery. Some of the results we found were pretty interesting, right? Renewable energy actually fared pretty well in this analysis uh, and showed that at the point of use, right, wind and solar had fairly high EROIs above 10 it also showed how energy intensive the fossil fuel economy is, right? How expensive it is on a per unit basis to refine oil and ship natural gas and for coal as well. So that's but Dave, kind of I want to come back
0: there. to uh, the complexity of the system and how that fits in in, in a minute here. Mm-hmm. But I do think the EcoInvent database, so I think this is an important point because we're in an era of big data and data sets. Mm-hmm. And I think what a lot of people might not realize is, is maybe- one of the greatest things from the ESG movement or an awareness of climate change is, is you've got a very established life cycle analysis that's governed by ISO that's created a lot of these data sets. And so mm-hmm. the data sets are what we're pulling from in doing sort of this same EROI analysis to kind of get this harmonized data. Is that the
1: right way to think of that? Yes, certainly. Lifecycle analysis has existed mainly in the environmental engineering world for, for decades. And what we've done in the net energy analysis world, or what we've tried to do, is basically utilize some of the methodologies from the LCA and the vast databases that they have to bolster our own research. And, you know, 20 years ago, a lot of the energy analysis research was done just collecting data sets wherever we could. And if we can, if we can backstop those or add to them by using these huge databases that are curated and really accurate, we can get values for return on investments that are, are are much better than the ones that we used to be able to do. It's really kind of increased the rigor with which we can do some of these analyses, and therefore, you know, the value of the output.
0: Okay, so we've got this harmonized methodology. We've got a big data set to pull from that allows us to. Pretty much get an energy footprint or fingerprint, if you will, on any good or service that's being produced. Now, mm-hmm. how does that fit within our economy? How do we think about sort of the metabolic clearing rate of the
1: of the economy? I think this is where the insight of understanding the economy as an energy system is really important, right? So, if we think of the economy as an energy system, which it is, right? There are some rules that apply to it. And these rules are the laws of thermodynamics, which means the energy cannot be created within the economy. It can't be created or destroyed. So the economy has to be fed energy from outside. Let's call that the energy-producing sector, right? And it also means that energy can't be recycled, right? That's the entropy law. Once we use energy, right, it's converted into a, a lower quality form. Basically, most energy ends up being waste heat. And that just means. Literally, what I'm talking about, just like think of a car. You know, you put gasoline into a car. The gasoline's burned in the engine, and the engine heats up, right? All of that heat—that's the inefficiency of the burning of the fuel—and it heats up. So you lose some of the energy as that waste heat. But then also, once you've utilized some of the the gasoline to to move the vehicle, right? You can't you can't just like collect the CO2 coming out the back and and make more energy without putting in a lot more energy into that system, right? You can't recycle that energy; it's gone. So, what does this mean? It means that the economy needs a constant throughput of energy. It has to continually be fed high quality energy to run all of the various parts of the economy, right? To keep the lights on, to keep buildings heated, to keep buildings cool, to operate trains and cars. All of these things require energy right? So we have to constantly, the energy producing sector has to constantly be feeding that energy into the economy. And then that economy uses it and that energy is lost and then more energy has to come in, right? So there's got to be some sort of profit, right? The energy sector itself has to harvest this energy from nature. And that's where we calculate that energy return on investment. Let's say the average across the energy sector is five to one, right? So for every unit it invests, it gets five units out, and it's going to deliver four of those units to the economy, and that economy can use that energy to keep the lights on, right? As we produce new energy producing technologies, as we develop new fossil fuel resources, if the energy return on investment is lower than what the economy is already operating on, well, then it's it, meaning like it's in this example, be less than five to one. It's increasing the cost of the energy producing system, and therefore it's actually increasing the cost of the entire system, and bringing it down in that sense, making it less efficient, right? And the converse is true, right? If we have technologies that have higher EROIs, well, then it's adding more profit energy to the system and increasing the energy returns of that system. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does to me. So. Maybe I'll just frame it for our audience a a little bit differently. Let's say we didn't have money, we just traded things, right? In terms of goods and services, would be closer to a one-to-one. But as complexity increases in our modern society, the ability to have electricity at any time, it's going to make the system less efficient or require more energy to support the needs of that system. And if we're putting things into that system that are below whatever the clearing rate is it actually increases the hurdle rate because it's making the system less efficient is that maybe just a different yeah, way yeah of-
1: yeah exactly so basically as society grows right it's mostly growing outside the energy sector so the energy costs of that society are increasing over time think about it like as more as we have more buildings as we have more connections between different societies right like the energy costs of societies tend to grow over time, which means the energy sector has to keep providing more and more energy to support that, right? And and this is where the tension is now, right? Is that like as society is growing, we're having the energy costs go up, right? And now we have this also this transition occurring in the energy sector, right? Which is changing the energy profitability of that sector, changing energy flows to society. And the question is whether or not those are in sync, right? Like is the energy transition going to be able to pay for all of the increased complexity that society also requires at this point, right? And that's that's kind of the big question.
0: Well, let's bring this back to renewables for a second, because I think this is a great place to interject. We see where you fall on sort of political spectrum that. Renewables tend to either be good or they tend to be bad. And I think what you and I have been talking about more recently is subjective view of right or wrong, good or bad, is probably the wrong way to look at an objective technology. But if you don't understand, so if you're starting from a point where you don't understand energy's role and you put a new technology that changes the system dynamics and you try and let's say, for example, Germany, you shut down a nuclear plant and replace it with an intermittent renewable, you're in and you don't adjust the system to accommodate, then you've just made the overall economy in said Germany less efficient or require more energy to actually clear. And so the problem then isn't with the underlying technology that you're putting in, but the problem then becomes the system that you're not changing. And I think widespread, this is one of the big challenges with the energy transition is if you don't understand the problem to begin with, and you start adding in a bunch of changes in terms of the input energy technologies, which you run the risk of making the system less efficient, therefore collapsing the economy where it will ultimately clear at a lower rate or require more energy to clear. That might be a good place to to sort of unpack what we're doing in terms of EROI
1: to ROIC too. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's really important. Like a lot of people just think about, they might read something called like a levelized cost of solar or something like that. There's a lot of different estimates you can get out there for the cost of generation. But that is just a point estimate of what the cost of one technology is, right? Right. The question really is about the energy system is how, what is the overall cost going to be for transitioning the system to utilize those technologies efficiently, right? If we just build out generation and nobody's to be sure, nobody's like just proposing this, but if generation just gets built out by itself, right? When renewable generation is fundamentally, we're trying to fit renewable generation into a system that is built for centralized generation. And those two don't necessarily, you know, they're not going to be used that effectively. You end up spending a ton of money and a ton of capital, right, building out all of generation capacity, and then you're underutilizing it, right? So that's not an effective strategy going forward. But that is kind of the strategy that some people think about that don't understand kind of the challenges presented by the system, right? So- Well, Dave, you said
0: that nobody's explicitly suggesting this, but implicitly, if you're Funding, let's take the IRA, for example. So you take a lot of money, and you're going to fund the actual technologies to make them more efficient. If you don't understand that the problem isn't with the technology, but the problem is with the system and adoption, you're implicitly doing exactly what you might not explicitly be doing. So you're putting, to think of a plumbing mechanism, you're putting more water in the system than the system can hold. Because you haven't adjusted how the system operates or the size of the pipes that the water is going
1: through. Yes, I would agree with that. I guess some of the studies that show there's no technological barrier to, to achieving, I said this earlier, like a 60, 80 percent grid system. We can do it with the technologies we have right now. but like the most recent report from NREL, right, in a bunch of their scenarios, it requires two, three, four hundred billion dollars in investment in transmission infrastructure to go along with all of the other buildouts, right? So it's not just one that you can't do one or you sh- we shouldn't be trying to do one without the other. And I would agree with you that there it is an implicit kind of suggestion there. In, and I just went through
0: this personally. I mean, I I went through this experience putting solar on the farm. And I got to say, it was the most difficult experience and painful dealing with my local utility. They really don't want solar, even though that they publicly are saying, hey, we want to support renewables from an explicit perspective, implicitly, they really don't want it. That's what I learned because the mm-hmm. permitting process and the interconnection was so onerous, what they would actually allow me to put on my roof was much smaller, particularly if I went with batteries. And the, in my case, the transmission system in terms of the transformers that were on the pole, which they wanted me to upgrade and pay for, They're trying to use their constituents' dollars to try and make the burden less on them. That comes back to just a pure misunderstanding of what their business model should be. But if you don't understand how that's going to operate, you foist that upon the constituents, which can only result in, in my opinion, the baby getting thrown out with the bathwater, which it probably shouldn't.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope not, right? That would be definitely a bad unintended consequence. But I mean, you can see your experience scaled up at the interconnection level for some of the utility scale projects too, that there's just these massive queues now for various projects to get approved to interconnection being like when you interconnect a project with, just for the listeners, with the transmission infrastructure that's out there, right? These, these are probably two different entities that own these things and then they're queued up, right? So there's like there's almost as much capacity in queue right now than we would need for some of the scenarios for these 60, 70, 80% renewable. It's already in the queue, but the success rate for these projects is sometimes in single digits in different areas. So a lot of them get canceled for various reasons, but these queues, right, the, to get these interconnections are, are part of the issue, right? And that comes down to understanding the system, right? We have to be able to upgrade the system and figure out how these two products, not just transmission, but like transmission is a big part, how transmission and renewable and variable renewable energy kind of articulate and can work best together so that we don't just spend a ton of money, increase the cost of the energy system in general, right? Which of course, increase the clearing cost for the energy sector and society as a whole, like you were talking about.
0: I just wanna come back to a point that I don't think we made explicitly clear yet, Capital can only come from the transformation of energy, which is why I think you and I have started with energy in terms of the basis to build this framework. And the beauty of energy is it's governed by laws that have never known to be broken. And so one of the things I think we found in some of the work that you did and is that things with a or technologies with a high EROI also tended to have a high ROIc because you're more efficiently Mm -hmm. using the energy and the capital that's coming from that said energy, resulting in a a higher return on that invested capital. That's a linkage that I think is pretty important in terms of, because most of our listeners will be investors. And as you're thinking about how do I find higher ROIC or greater alpha generation with less beta risk, that's the basis for a good investment or getting greater returns. that's the linkage that we've writing about at this point and we should be having another paper here soon as well
1: there's two sides to this right there's and this is the stuff we're working on right now the first part is is conceptually, how are these two things related? And there's a lot to be said about energy return on investment, energy out over energy in compared to something like like ROIC, return on invested capital, and kind of comparing that to like weighted average cost of capital or something like that, right? These are analogous metrics, one using financial units and one using energy units. So they play by slightly different rules. And when you, you map them kind of on a Cartesian plane or something, you can get different insights about investment opportunities, about technologies, because The financial side may indicate something that the energy side does not, right? You can think of examples of like corn-based ethanol as being like a really interesting case study. And this is an older one, right? But it applies to things like hydrogen, Europe right now, which may be doubling down on synthetic fuels again. But, you know, the idea of being basically like, well, what does it mean if a technology has a really low EROI but is financially profitable, right? What insights can be gained by understanding both of those two metrics together, And then going beyond that, right, and hopefully what what will develop in the future work is is literally tying these two things kind of in an algorithm together to really just not be like the measure, of course, right, because there's a ton of measures out there, but to be another measure and a valuable one that that people can use when making decisions. If you have
0: a profitable low EROI, to me, that suggests that you have to have an uh, exogenous source of capital to fund that, i.e. subsidies which has been the case with the case study you mentioned in terms of ethanol. I think we funded that in the US for over a 15 year period of time to roughly 80 billion and the sad part about that is the technology never improved. And the question then becomes what could we have done with that 80 billion had we used that in a more productive way. And I think that's that's kind of the hope is that by using these metrics we can Help educate those that make decisions on the institutional side in terms of which technologies should have a lower cost of capital because they're more efficacious in terms of input within the overall system. Or even I have little hope here, having done some policy work myself. But maybe our politicians can understand this better and have better policy. In mm-hmm. the combination of of those two things, should be able to to help us in this massive transition which is not new, right? The energy transitions, energy is always transitioning, right? The the idea, it's a bit of an oxymoron that, uh, but, you know, we have to accelerate that in terms of from an existential perspective. And if we go about this wrong, we do run the risk of collapsing the system in upon itself,
1: even if it's well-intentioned. Yes. And I hope that's not, obviously, I hope that doesn't come to fruition and that doesn't happen, but That's why the work's so important, Dave. Like
0: you're saving humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Oh,
1: gosh.
0: (laughs) I mean, a little bit of joking and cheekiness, but in a way it really is. I mean, it starts with the education and understanding of of what's actually going on. Seeing the world as it is objectively is really important so that we can have a foundation to to build off of.
1: I completely agree. And I mean, like, the opportunity costs shouldn't be dismissed right i mean like what you're talking about the 80 billion dollars that we spend in corn ethanol or however many billions we're spending in other other efforts in the ira right now right what how else could we use those right how else could we utilize that i mean we do have to build that transmission infrastructure and some of the money's allocated for that those, those purposes but like we, we should really be careful that we don't just allocate money to things that are going to increase the cost of supporting our system, right? And hydrogen is a big question mark right now for me, but maybe in some particular case studies, but across the board, I, I don't know. We just have to be, be very kind of discerning about the way in which we spend this because there are consequences.
0: Agreed. Listen, thank you for coming on. I um, want to have you back where we can uh, go through some of those details. But this has been a great first podcast to kind of level set around the work that we're doing in EROI, that you're doing in EROI POU and what we'll be doing together in terms of connecting the EROI and ROIC and, and what that framework looks like. So thank awesome. you. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: For more, head to williamblair.com thinking, where you can browse our library of white papers, market updates, webinars, and all these other resources designed to provide actionable intelligence for emerging opportunities. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next show. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair & Company LLC, William Blair Investment Management LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.